Last week, both the Australian and American governments announced the last troops would be leaving Afghanistan by September this year. I'll have to admit that announcement surprised me. Not that troops were leaving, but that we still had a military presence in Afghanistan. Australian troops first went to Afghanistan almost 20 years ago in the wake of the September 11 attacks on the Twin Towers. It's been 20 years of struggle, and it'd be naive to think the reason the American and Australian armed forces are leaving is because there is now peace and stability in Afghanistan. It'd be naive to think it's because the threat of terrorism is now defeated. The troops may be coming home, but it's just a comma in the long story of wars throughout history. Today is Anzac Day. We commemorate today 106 years since the landing at Gallipoli, that awful start to the horrible campaign early in the war that was said would end all wars, but it didn't. No war ever will. We say we fight for peace. It's a phrase dripping with unintentional irony. But it's also a claim that's clearly false. If we're fighting for peace, why do wars continue? Or to ask a similar question, but from a different angle, how can we end war? People have come up with various solutions. Maybe what we need is more diplomacy, international agreements and conversation. Maybe the United Nations will stop war. Maybe we need capitalism and free trade. If other nations are your customers and suppliers, surely you won't kill the people you need to get rich. Alternatively, capitalism is the problem. We talk about the military-industrial complex. War's worth it if my share portfolio goes up. And so the solution is a global reset, the end of accumulated wealth, maybe the end of nations and religion too, if John Lennon is right. In different ways, these solutions and others like them have been tried, yet war continues. Today we're going to look at this question. What does God say? What does God say about where war comes from? And what answer does he give to a world at war? And that's the question James takes up in chapter 4 of his letter. So please have your Bible open and have a look at verse 1 of chapter 4. This is James chapter 4, verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Now this passage is full of the language of war. Fights and quarrels sound pretty tame. Literally, it's wars and battles. What causes wars and battles amongst you? The picture is a battlefield, but the context is church. That's who the you is in this question. The passage isn't primarily thinking about wars between nations. It's dealing about the wars we fight much closer to home. Though it's a common human problem, what causes the wars that sent men to die in the trenches, it's the same thing that causes the fights and quarrels in our families, 
in our neighbourhoods and in our churches. Because they all come from the same source, our hearts. Have a listen to the answer to the question in verse 1. Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet what you cannot get, what you, but, sorry, you covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. So what's the answer? What's the source of war? Our desires, our conflicted desires, our frustrated desires. We want something and we'll stop at nothing until we get it. We want power, we want control, and we'll do anything to get it. You see it in children. There's a toy sitting on the floor. Two kids want it, and they if they both get to it at the same time, they'll tackle and fight to try and get their hands on what they want. And then they grow up, and they just have bigger weapons. We see it in nations. There's some land near the border where the lines are a little bit fuzzy and the history's unclear and for years there's been the occasional conversation, we'll call it, about whose land it is. Then oil is found and the next thing you know, tanks are rolling in. Where does war come from? Our desires. Our desires for things, for wealth, for power, for control. God here has a piercing assessment of our world, but not just our world, our hearts. Now think about a fight or conflict you've been involved in, maybe in your family, in your workplace. Think about this answer. How was this answer true for you? What was going on in your heart where... What was the thing that you wanted, you desired, but you couldn't have, and then how did that play out? Now, this isn't the whole story of war. There are conflicts or wars you might be in where you are the victim. The reason for the fight wasn't the battle in your desires, but in theirs. They wanted to control, oppress, or take from you. You're just going about your life and then the ships come sailing to your shores and they plant a flag, they claim as their own what isn't theirs. There are conflicts where you're the victim. You're being bullied and the conflict comes because you're seeking justice, which is a good desire. James's assessment here isn't referring to the victim in these conflicts. He's addressing the desires of the bully, though... At the same time, when the bullets are flying, it's easy to assume you're the good guy. We need to take what God says seriously. The answer to why there are wars and battles is normally more complex than he started it. But the desires that are at war within us... We want things, we want power, we want control, and we'll do anything to get it. Anything, that is, except ask God. Verse 2 continues, You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures, on your desires. How true is this? 
he hits the nail on the head again. The problem with our desires isn't that they're too big, but they're too small. Why don't we pray? It's because God hasn't got anything to do with our desires. We think our hearts will be satisfied if we just get that thing, if we have more wealth, more stuff, more power, but our hearts will only be satisfied in God. There's a reason we don't pray. We don't ask the Lord to buy us a Mercedes-Benz because we know that would be shallow and perverse. It's, it's too small for the God of the universe. Jesus talked about asking God, about how good fathers don't give bad gifts. If a child asks for a fish, you don't give a snake. And his point is, God is the best father. And so he'll give good gifts to those who ask. But listen carefully to what Jesus actually says. This is from Luke 11. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Why ask God for something as trivial as a European car when he will give you the Holy Spirit, the presence of God himself? Sometimes we don't take our desires to God because deep down we know they're not worthy of him. But we still want it, and then we fight and quarrel when we don't get what we desire. But sometimes we do ask God. We pray May my sporting team win. Please give me success in this business deal. Uh, Look, we can take anything to God in prayer, but James is asking us to assess our hearts. What's our motive? What's our desire behind what we ask? Here's one we do regularly. I think we need to be careful about how and why we even ask for rain. If we're praying for rain because we want a bumper crop, we want a bigger harvest so we can build bigger barns and love money more, then James says we won't receive because we ask from the wrong motive. We need to be careful why we ask. Yes, pray for rain. It is a great way of expressing the truth that we depend on God for everything in life. It's a great way to express that every good gift comes from God, but beware of motives. Beware desires. Because that's where war comes from. Uh, But the problem of our desires doesn't just lead to fights between people, it's also the cause of our war with God. Verse 4, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think, Scripture says, without reason, that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? Now, when he calls people adulterers, he's not saying they're literally cheating on their spouse. No, it's a a common metaphor in the Old Testament for faithlessness to God. Uh, The big metaphor is with Hosea, the prophet, who was told to marry a woman who would be unfaithful. And this was a picture of God's people not worshipping God alone, but cheating with idols, with pretend gods. When we are friends with the world, when we love the things of the world and desire those lesser things more than we love God and more than we desire God, we commit adultery. 
We are faithless to the one who loves us, who loves us intently. Uh, That's what verse 5 is getting at. Uh, The spirit, I think it means the human spirit, the breath of life God's given every human being. Uh, God created people to live with him in the garden. And by faith in Jesus, he gives us new life, a new spirit, so we can enjoy eternal life with him. What verse 5 means is that for God, God loves us. He jealously longs for us. And this love that God has for us brings him glory. I think sometimes we, we don't get God's love right. We think maybe God's love is an obligation. He doesn't really want to love us. I think that comes because we, we rightly say God doesn't love us because we're lovable. Our love is like that, isn't it? We love things that are lovable. There's a cute puppy and we love it for being cute. But we know we are not adorable. We're sinners and we know God hates sin. And we start thinking, well, surely God doesn't really genuinely love us. He must be reluctant. It must be some kind of obligation. But the truth is, God jealously longs for his people. And yes, that says much more about him than it does about us. But it's true, he loves his people. Even when we're his enemies. And the cross shows us how true this is. Uh, Romans 5.10 says, For if while we were God's enemies... We were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? When did Jesus die? When did he love us enough to to die in the place of sinners? When did he show this love for us? While we were enemies. When we turn away from God. When we set our desires on the things of the world. When we love things and we love having power and we love our preferences and our comfort. We set ourselves up as enemies of God. But God's grace is bigger than our enmity. So back to James uh, chapter 4, and this is verse 6. But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud but shows favour to the humble. Uh, This quote is from Proverbs. Uh, The context is enlightening. So this is Proverbs 3, starting at verse 31. Do not envy the violent or choose any of their ways. For the Lord detests the perverse but takes the upright into his confidence. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but but he blesses the home of the righteous. He mocks proud mockers but shows favour to the humble and oppressed. When we desire the wrong things and, and that causes fights and wars... Is it because we're envious of the violent and the wicked? We want what they've got. Whether it's their house, which the proverb says is cursed by God, or their power and status, we do that at the risk of being mocked by God, but God shows grace and favour to the humble. So what have we seen so far? Where does war come from? Well, it comes from our desires. And that's true whether we're talking about fights in our families or nations at war. 
A ruler wants to extend his power to go down in history as the one who made the nation great and he'll send hundreds of thousands to their grave. You want that promotion at work and it doesn't matter who you've got to stab in the back to get there. You get the buzz from being in control and calling the shots and you'll break that church into factions and destroy the reputation of the gospel to get power. And these desires, which cause fights and quarrels in our relationships, they also put us at enmity with God because we're loving these things more than we love God. So what's the answer? Uh, What could possibly end all wars? Well, as we just heard in James 4, 6 and the Proverbs, God's way for peace is humility humbly repenting and drawing near to God. Verse 7, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. When we're ruled by our desires, we're doing the opposite of this. We're resisting God and submitting to the ways of the evil one. But how do we submit ourselves to God and how do we resist the devil? Well, the next verse tells us it's through knowing God and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus. Verse 8, come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. In the garden, the man and the woman sin and then they hide from God. But we don't need to hide in our shame. God gives grace to the humble. He jealously desires his people. The promise is, draw near to him and he won't turn you away. But how do you do that? How do we draw near to God? How do you wash your hands and purify your heart? Does that mean God will only accept us when we scrub upright? No, verse 9 says, the purified heart The clean hands come from repentance. Verse 9, grieve, mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. True repentance takes sin seriously. True repentance takes sin seriously. Well, don't think... God loves us. He will draw near to us. So that means sin doesn't really matter. No, sin matters. It's serious enough to warrant the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance begins by taking sin seriously. Grieving over it. Not laughing it off, but humbly coming to God. Now this humility has confidence. God will draw near to you, but he draws near not because We are worthy, but because he is. And as we follow Jesus, we continue in humility because that's what Jesus taught and did. Once Jesus' disciples were arguing and quarreling, fortunately it was only a war of words, but their conversation revealed their desires. They wanted to be great, the greatest in the coming kingdom of God But Jesus turns their expectations and their desires the right way up. Jesus said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. Um, Humbling yourself before God is a great way, is the great way 
in God's kingdom. Because it's the way of Jesus who made himself last, taking on our humanity, humbling himself to the cross that he might be raised in glory. People have got all sorts of ways and ideas they think will end war. But none of them have worked. Because none of them get to the heart of the issue. None of these solutions deal with the problem of our frustrated desires, our wrong desires. And none of them have the power of God to cleanse hands and purify hearts, to restore our relationship with God. But in Christ and by the Spirit he gives, we have the way of peace. And the way is humility. Humility before God and humility before other people. Uh, Living humbly and being the servant of all means we say no to our desires, no to our preferences for the sake of others. You don't need to always get your way. In fact, being humble before God may mean you often don't. But we do this with the promise that God will lift us up. We don't have to lift ourselves up because God will. And we need to ask God to help us learn that our false desires promise much, but deliver little. In fact, they deliver only pain. We need to ask God to fill our hearts with desire for him so our false desires will lose their appeal. We're going to do that now. Uh, Please join with me as we pray and ask God to continue to do this work in us. Father God, we acknowledge before you our broken, our twisted, our frustrated desires. We are so easily misled to think we'll be satisfied in all sorts of things which aren't you. We're sorry for this and confess that our, that out of our misshaped desires, we have caused fights and quarrels. We ask you to forgive us for this and we thank you that you give us more grace. Please help us be peacemakers. Help us to humble ourselves before you, to think of others more than ourselves, to put our desires and preferences second in order to live at peace. Holy God, we thank you so much that your grace is sufficient. That although we have been friends with the world, unfaithful, yet you give more grace. And so we continue to draw near to you that our hands might be cleansed and our hearts purified from sin through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.